0: Good to be with you. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Tim. What's your name? Nice to meet you. If I don't have met you already, it's good to be back with you. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the Executive Minister of Growing Healthy Churches, the Network Association of Like-Minded Churches, about 145 of us, and you are a key part of that. So it's my pleasure to be with you today. Let me start by asking a question. Show of hands, how many of you ever get confused some of you are lying, right? Because we all do. Look at your neighbor and say, you look confused. I didn't say tell them why, just tell them, right? Uh, when I thought about that, I thought about, uh, heard recently that there was a CHP officer on uh, I-5 that pulled over a car. Uh, he walked up to the car and he had stopped this car because it was, it was moving so slowly, And as he walked to the the front window, he noticed that there were four women, elderly women, in this car. And uh, he asked the lady to roll down her window there by the driver's seat. And he says, ma'am, do you have any idea why I stopped you? And she said, I have no idea, officer. He said, because you're moving at such a slow pace, it's very dangerous. She said, well, officer, I was only going the speed limit. And he said, ma'am, I clocked you going five miles an hour. And she said, that sign back there said 5. And he said, no, ma'am, you're, you're on Interstate 5. That's not, that's not the speed limit. And he looked in the car and he saw these three other women that were just white with terror. And he said, uh, ladies, are you okay? And they said, yeah, we just came off the 152. <laughs> Sometimes we get a little confused, don't we? And when I think about confusion, I think about what's going on in the church across the United States of America today. Did you know that Christianity, according to Pew Research, October of 2019, is on one of the most rapid declines that they have seen in the history of the world in America today? While Christianity is on a rapid decline in America, atheism, agnosticism, And those who would classify themselves as the nuns, they have no affiliation with any religious group at all, are rapidly increasing. Fewer than 18% of Americans attend church regularly. And get this, only 22% of those who do attend church have a favorable view of their church. Think about that. Do you know that More Americans now say that they attend religious services just a few times a year than ever before in the history of the church. They just say we'll come a few times a a year, not even monthly now. Dave and Greg Ferguson in their book Exponential say that half of the 350 or so churches in America did not see one new believer in Christ last year. That every week, 43,000 Americans are leaving the church for good. According to Gallup and churchleadership.org, in the U.S. today, we lose 75 churches per week. Did you know that? On average, 75 churches per week close their doors, while we open only 25 per week. Now, I was an English major, not a math major, but I can tell you, just doing simple math there, That's a loss of about 50 churches per week. We know, according to Charles Arne, that no county in the United States has a higher percentage of church people than it did 10 years ago. And we know that America ranks third behind China and India in the number of non-Christian people. We are the third largest nation in the world in need of evangelism. We are only second to Brazil and the number of missionaries now being received. We know this firsthand in growing healthy churches. In work that we were doing in Nairobi, and training pastors and working with some churches there, a large church in Nairobi called Nairobi Chapel came to us and said, We would like to partner with you to send some of our folks to San Francisco to help evangelize San Francisco because it seems like nobody cares about what's happening in your own back door there in California with one of the most unchurched populations in the world. Why is it that Christianity is the fastest growing religion around the world with the exception of Europe, Australia, and North America? Why is that? Does that bother any of you? Bothers me. And so today I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that may rock our world. I want to look at a passage of Scripture that may be where we are starting to get or have been having some of our confusion in our churches. Today, in the two hours that I have, I'm going to go through. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't. I thought Gilbert told me I had two hours. No? Uh, If you have a Bible with you and you want to turn with me or you can follow along on the screens, I'm going to, to teach through the entire chapter of Luke chapter 15. Very familiar passage of scripture for a lot of us who've been around church for a while. But in Luke chapter 15, Jesus starts to share something with religious people that was literally rocking their world. And what we're going to see in Luke chapter 15 is he tells a series of three stories with one common theme. So Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Now, I want, I want to stop here for just a second. In the New Testament, when you see tax collectors and you see in the NIV, they put even quotation marks around the word sinners. This means that this is the worst of the worst possible people. You think the IRS is hated today. You think about the tax collectors of yesterday. They were seen as people who robbed their own. They were despised. Now, what I find very interesting is that the worst of the worst are gathering around to hear Jesus. The most irreligious people in the world are drawn to Him. But, verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Isn't it ironic that the most irreligious people are drawn to Jesus and the most religious people are repelled by Jesus. Makes me wonder, would we be uncomfortable with who he would hang out with in Lamor? Verse 3, Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost We're going to see that word a lot here in this chapter. Everybody say lost. Lost. The lost. Does he not go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now obviously Jesus was really good at teaching and so he tried to bring things right down to, to people's level. And when he would tell parables, he would engage with them on their level. They're in agrarian culture. There's a lot of shepherds that he would be talking to. A lot of people who owned ranches. And obviously, if your livelihood depended upon a a ranch full of sheep and you lost one, Jesus is asking a rhetorical question, isn't he? If you lose one of your sheep, would you go look for it? And what's the obvious answer? Yes. Why is that? Because whenever you lose something of value, it occupies your attention. Whenever you lose something of value, it occupies your attention. How many of you have ever lost your keys? Yeah? How many of you have ever lost a wallet or a purse? How many of you have ever lost your cell phone? Does it occupy your attention until you find it? How many of you have ever lost a kid? Does it occupy your attention? Well, depending on which one it is, I guess, right? But you get the point. When something of value is lost, it becomes the focus of the owner's attention. And then Jesus goes on and he says this in verse 5. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls all of his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my, there's that word again, lost sheep. And then he adds his own commentary. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. What gets God excited? When people who are relationally disconnected from Him find their way back home. He goes on to a second parable. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Now ladies, I'll need your help here because sometimes we men don't understand this. But in this culture, uh, in this setting... The ladies in the hearing of Jesus' words here would have gasped when he said that. Um, some commentators say that, well, maybe Jesus is talking to very poor women and for them to lose one coin could mean the difference between life or death for them. Others have said that maybe what he's referring to is the, the headpiece that often would have ten silver coins sewn into it that would be offered to the bride as sort of like the way we would compare it to today would be like a wedding ring or an engagement ring so could you imagine if you lost your wedding ring or your engagement ring some of you have it's not a good feeling is it so when Jesus would have said this ladies they would have gasped so I'm going to read it again and ladies at the appropriate time would you make this passage of scripture come alive Will you help me, ladies? Can you help me today? Will you just gasp at the appropriate time so you can help us guys really understand this passage? Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. Now suppose that a woman has how many? Ten silver coins and she loses one. Isn't that so much better? A rhetorical question here. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Of course, what's the answer? Yes, Yes. why? Because when you lose something of value, it occupies your attention. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together. She posts on Facebook. She sends out a tweet. She does something on Instagram. She does something on other venues. She, she, She sends it out everywhere. And what does she say? Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. Sense of relief. And again, Jesus offers commentary. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's as if our Father God is on this search and rescue mission to put people who are disconnected from Him back into a relationship with him now the third parable is often pulled out and taught on its own and it and it's a great parable but it was meant to be connected with these other two how many of you have ever heard the parable of the prodigal son well this is it Jesus continued there was a man who had two sons church how many sons did he have gosh you're so smart to be so early of the morning you're so good the younger one said to his father father give me my share of the estate now this would be like a son coming to a dad and saying dad I wish you would give me my inheritance now before you die so that you don't spend it all up before you die sound like a loving son Father, give me my share of the estate, he said. Now, here's something very important that's often missed, I think, in this passage of Scripture. So he, speaking of the father, divided his property between them. That day, both sons got their share of the inheritance. Now, I'm going to go quickly now. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need, so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, the pig was one of the most unclean of animals for Jews, so everybody in the audience who were Jewish would probably be gagging at this point. I'm not going to ask you to do that, okay? He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now when he came to his senses, which is often what will happen when we hit rock bottom, right? He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and, we, and he kissed him. Now let's stop for just a second here. We love this because we know that in this parable, Jesus is referring to the father as God and the son as to all of us who've wandered away from a relationship with him, Right? And we love this, before the son could come home and even get cleaned up, while he's still smelling like a stinky pig, with his life still messy, the father runs to him, embraces him, and kisses him, loves on him, welcomes him back before he's ever cleaned up. There is a misnomer in our culture today for a lot of people who think that I'm not good enough to come to church and I need to get my life cleaned up before God will have a relationship with me. There is no proof of that anywhere in Scripture. Scripture teaches that He takes us while we're still stinky. And then through a relationship with Him, He helps us get cleaned up. Is that okay, church? Verse 21, he says, the, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, you bring the best robe and you put it on him. You put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. You bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was what? Lost. And he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, this is where the story would probably, if we had music behind it, be dum-dum-dum-dum. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Where was the older son? In the field. He was working, serving the father faithfully. He heard music and dancing, and so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on, and he says, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. Now, let's pause for a second. Angry. Why would he get angry? Some people say, well, he was jealous. That could be. But I have a little different twist on it. Maybe the reason he became angry is because when he heard about the robe that was put on him, whose robe was it actually? You see, at the beginning of the story, the property was divided between them. Whose sandals were they? Whose signet ring was it? Whose fattened calf was it actually? So the father was actually taking From the elder son's part of the inheritance. To welcome back the son that had gone off and squandered his wealth and wild living. Hmm. Could you imagine? That the father would be so excited about the lost being reconnected. That he would actually want to dip into the resources of somebody who never left home to celebrate, to restore. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Verse 29. He answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he's no longer a brother... Who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You're always with me, and everything that I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, see the switch? Hey, if he's my son, what does that make him to you? (laughs) He was dead and he is alive again. He was lost. And is found. You know, I'm going to come back to this, but this story ends on a very sad note. One who is outside, refusing to go in and enjoy the party. But let's go to. Let's get three learning points this morning. Uh, the first is this: all through this story, we see this embedded that when something of value is lost, it becomes the focus of the attention of the owner. And let's talk about that word lost for just a second. Because in our culture and context today, whenever we use the term lost, it's mostly viewed as a derogatory term, correct? But isn't it interesting, Jesus is using it in front of people who are the sinners and the tax collectors, the most irreligious, and they're drawn to Jesus. Could it be that in the way that we express what lost means in our culture, that it's offensive? But what Jesus expressed it, it was not. And I think that's because we've lost the meaning of the term lost. As I've told you before, I grew up in a southern culture. And in the southern culture, there was a lot of pounding on the pulpit when somebody would preach. There was a lot of profuse sweating going on. And I remember as a kid growing up, different speakers would pound on that wooden pulpit and say, You know what? Our world is lost and going to hell in a handbasket. And everybody'd say, Amen, amen. It's lost, brother, it's lost. But when Jesus used the term, it was more, I think, about a reflection of how God feels about people who are lost. One of my favorite singers, probably my favorite, don't laugh at me too much, okay? I'm a kid of the 80s. Um, I love Michael Bolton. <laughs> and I love some of his old songs. And that swooner, you know, he would often sing and, and, uh, about things like... I am so lost without you. When you're not with me, I'm lost. I wonder if the term lost actually is a term of endearment. That God is saying to his children who have wandered away, I'm lost without you. So if we're going to apply that, we would... If that's how God feels, and when someone is lost, it's the focus of His attention, then we should invest in what matters most to God and place our attention on the lost of our community. Lost meaning those who are relationally disconnected from their Creator God. Secondly, another learning point is that God gets excited when lost people are found. Scripture says that there is rejoicing in heaven when someone who is relationally disconnected from God the Father gets reconnected with their Creator God. That there's rejoicing in heaven. Hey, folks, I think that coming to church on a very regular basis is extremely important. Can, I, can somebody encourage me a little bit and say hey, amen? I, I, I believe it's really important, especially when you have a guest speaker. All right. But can I tell you something? When you came today, heaven did not rejoice. And I think attending a small group so that you can grow in a smaller community is extremely important for your growth as a disciple of Christ. But when you attend a small group, heaven doesn't party. My wife and I are reading through the Bible together this year and we think that having a steady dose of God's Word is extremely important for our faith and for our growth and for our knowledge and understanding of who God is. But each morning when we open up our Bible and read through our plan, heaven doesn't rejoice. Heaven rejoices when someone who has been relationally disconnected gets connected with their Heavenly Father. And if that moves heaven to rejoice, then how do I would apply that? I should be moved by what moves God. You see, it's very troubling to me when I hear people say things like this. Well, I want our church to grow, but I don't want us to get too big. And I hear that a lot. Because what you're really saying is that you want the church to remain the size that you are personally comfortable with. And you don't give a flip about everybody else who may be going to a lost eternity in hell. I'm Tim and I'm your friend. It just got really quiet in here. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's troubling when I hear people complain and whine about, well, this is not what I like about church, when the church is impacting the lost in the community. When people who have been with God for a long time somehow think that they should receive preferential treatment because of the length of tenure that they've had in a church. Bothers me. And I saw this firsthand when I was a young kid starting out in ministry. I was pastoring a church in in Indiana. What I called Nowhere Indiana. There were, um, you had to drive 11 miles to the nearest Coke machine. A community of 500, we were 11 miles from the main road and there were two houses inside of the church, the parsonage and farmer Charlie's and the rest was surrounded by soybeans or corn depending upon how they rotated the crops. A little tiny country church that had been obliterated a couple years that I, before I got there by a tornado and they had rebuilt this beautiful building out in the middle of nowhere and Over a few years, a little church of less than a hundred began to see people come to know Christ. And we were exploding at our seams. There was one Sunday that there were 15 adults walked forward in church at the end of the service to receive Christ as their Savior. And these were people who were far from God. And you know some people like this. These were people that when they started coming to church, there were whispers These were the sinners. And these were people that many people in our church had been praying for for years. And by the Spirit of God moving, they responded to God. And they came forward in that little church... And they accepted Christ. And we tried to make it as embarrassing as we possibly could for people, you know. And so a- after they accepted Christ, we shared with everybody their decision and made them stand across the front of the church. And then they, the, uh, we'd have our pianist and organist that would get on their respective instruments and somebody would call out a favorite hymn. And then the church would file by and give what we called the right hand of fellowship, welcoming them to the family of God. And so... They came by and and it was awesome. One of the best days. Still, I get chills thinking about it. As a 25 year old kid, that's 25 years ago, do the math. (laughs) And so after service, I'm on cloud nine. I am so happy. And I look, and at the back of the church, there's a lady standing there, and she's got her arms crossed, and she's got her jaw clenched, and she's tapping her foot. She was one of the longest living members of the church. Pastor, I want to talk to you. I said, okay, what's going on? And she said, somebody sat in my pew today. She said, this church is getting too big. This is ridiculous. And I was being mentored by a guy who was larger than life for me, and he had something similar happen. And in the back of my mind, and I'm just a scared 25-year-old kid who's just sort of starting out in ministry, and I thought, well, this is the way he handled it, so this is probably how I should handle it. And so I grabbed this lady by the hand, and I said, will you come with me? And she sat, we had a wraparound sanctuary like this, and she sat right here in the second row where you guys were. And I'd jump down there and do this, but I can't. I'd really hurt myself. And so <laughs> I walked her down the aisle to where she sat, and I knelt by the pew, and I said, uh can you can you show me where your name is written on this pew? <laughs> Thankfully there was not a dedication plaque. And she said, well, it's not. And I said, you're right, it's not. It's not. And, and this is not your pew. And I know that you've been in church for this church all your life, but can I tell you something? This is not your church. This is the bride of Christ. And as its leader, as its leader, I cannot allow anybody to try to commit adultery with the bride of Christ. It's his church, not yours. And this is not your pew. And she went, oh. And I said to her, can I tell you something else? you know who you are you're the prodigal son and she said what now pastor you've crossed the line I have never ever done anything illegal immoral in fact, I was born in this church. I was raised in this church. Anytime the church doors are open, I am here. I have given faithfully to this church. I have served in just about every ministry in this church, on every committee in this church. And I give sacrificially to this church. I am not and never have nor will go spend my life on wild living like the prodigal son. And I said, oh, see, so you know the story. I've taught it many times to kids in Sunday school. And I said, Oh, you have? I said, Then you'll know that there wasn't one prodigal, there were actually two. One realized the error of his way and he came home to find the love, compassion, and forgiveness of a loving father. The other never left the presence of the father. Served the father faithfully. Gave sacrificially at home. Never left home. But at the end of the story, he's out of fellowship with the father, even though he's right in the presence of the father, because of his attitude towards a lost son who got found. You are the elder son. And you think... That it's fine that we reach people in our community as long as it doesn't cost you anything. But the moment that it starts costing you something like where you sit or a little bit of money or your favorite songs or times of services, then you think you should be given preferential treatment because you've been around longer. Seems to me like, just like that elder son, should he have not, because he spent all the time with the father, have been reflecting more of the father's attitude than what he did at the end of the story? He had grown old with the father. But his attitude didn't reflect the father. You know what she said to me? I'm telling on you. And she did. She walked outside. The church had five deacons. And I could see through glass windows that she was talking to the five deacons. Oh, man, I'm getting fired. I'm getting fired. I'm getting fired. (laughs) Usually at this point, I forget to tell you the rest of the story. And people all forget about anything else. I say, well, what happened? What happened? So let me tell you, the deacons eventually came and talked to me. And I got reprimanded. And perhaps I should have because of my attitude. But I told the guys, I said, listen, what I said needed to be said because churches are full of elder brothers who have been around for a long time, but they don't reflect the love of the Father. So after my interaction there, I walked a little bit further, and there was a lady standing in the back, and her face was drenched in tears, and I thought, oh, man, she just heard my interaction. Oh, this is not good. And she said, Pastor, can I talk to you? And I said, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. What's going on? She said, I just want you to know that I would give anything if those were my kids and grandkids standing up there this morning. She said, I'd give anything. And again, I'm feeling a little ornery because of my interaction. I'm saying I'm probably going to get fired. You know, I'm looking out the window. And I looked at her and I said, you'd do anything? She said, I'd do anything. I said, really? Yeah. Okay, would you be willing for us to go from one service to two service and risk not knowing everybody so that we could open up more space for your kids and grandkids? Would you be willing not to park right by the door and park down the street so we could have parking for your kids and grandkids? Would you be willing for us to get rid of the hymnals and start doing some music that maybe were relevant to your kids and grandkids? Would you be willing to stop saying that you've served your time and that you it's time for somebody else to do some service in the church? Would you stop saying that and get involved with children's ministry so that We could have more ministries for your kids and grandkids. Would you be willing to give up your pew? All to which she said, Well, I didn't mean all that. (laughs) Oh, but you'd give your life. You see the duplicity that we have. One final point is that Jesus spent time with irreligious people because God is in the search and rescue business. So the application would be this. Are you going to join the Father in a search and rescue? There are two groups of you here this morning. Some of you are lost. You're relationally disconnected from the Heavenly Father. And I want you to know, don't take that term offensive. It has more to do with how God feels about not being in relationship with you than how we as Christians have sometimes used it. And I want you to know you can come home. Even before you're all cleaned up, just as you are. He loves you just as you are. But there's a second group, and it's probably the larger group that's here, and that's those of us who are found, folks. And I want to ask you some questions. Are you expressing more of the attitude of the elder brother these days? Are you joining in the search? I'd like with you to, uh, for you to imagine with me that you go camping with your family. Now, I have three kids. My wife Jen and I have three kids: Abby, who's twenty-one, a senior at Fresno Pacific, and uh, Allie, who is she's uh, she's sixteen and she's a junior at Clovis East, and Wyatt, who is ten and he is in fifth grade at Garfield Elementary, all in Clovis. So let's imagine that. We go camping as a family, and we get up in the Sierra somewhere where we can get lo- we, we can literally get lost from cell signal. Can I have an amen to that? I mean, so there's no cell service, and so we set up camp. Jen and I are getting things. We're building the fire. The kids are out doing their little hike or whatever. And the two girls come back, and and uh, they're sitting with us, and they're saying, uh, "We're like, well, where's Wyatt?" And I said, well, I don't know. What are we? Our brothers' keeper? <laughs> where is he? We haven't seen him in a while. What? I thought he was with you. No, he's not. And so immediately your heart begins to race, right? And you yell for him, Wyatt! No response. And you start to look a little bit. He's nowhere to be found. Can I tell you what you don't do? You don't look at your wife and say, don't worry about it, we already have two, it's fine. (laughs) You do something maybe like this, you'd say to her, "Uh, Jen, you take the girls, you get down the hill to where there's cell service, and I'll keep looking for Wyatt, and you call the sheriff's, Department because they have a search and rescue team. And let's suppose that they come and they get to where we are, and it's, it's getting late in the day. And then, rather than going on the search and rescue, they start setting up camp for all of the rescuers. And you go to them and you say, Hey, are you going to get, are you going to start searching? Well, Mr. Brown, we need to make sure that all of our search and rescue team are comfortable first. So, we're going to get them set up with tents, we're going to make sure that they're well fed, and you're just watching. Right? And you're thinking, what in the world? I thought this was what your mission was. Let's suppose as the evening goes on that they're not even going out. They're talking about, well, when are we going to eat here? And so they say, well, Mr. Brown, we'll start first thing in the morning or as soon as we can in the morning. And you have a sleepless night. You know, they're warm and well-fed and your son maybe bears food and he's cold. You wake up the next morning and you notice some of the search and rescue people are kind of lazy getting around and trying to get warm by the fire. And one of them finally says, you know what? We need to talk to the search and rescue lead because that bed that I sat in was a little hard. And I thought that the lecture that he's been given is getting a little long. And, you know, I noticed that my tent... I was starting to see it's getting a little thin. We need some new tents. We need to talk about fundraising for some tents. And uh, somebody else says, well, I'll tell you something else that needs to be addressed is the cook that we have, because I don't feel like that I'm being fed. We need to change the cook. And the leader says, now, come on, gang, let's get together around the campfire here. Let's pass out our songbooks. And let's all sing about being search and rescuers. Let's turn to that song called Rescue the Perishing, and let's sing that one. Now, as a father, what would you be doing? Are you kidding me? You want to talk about being a search and rescuer. You want to sing about it, but you're never going and doing it. You know where I'm going with this, right? The church that gathers to sing about saving the lost... Making a difference in a community and talking about it but never goes and does it is no different than a search and rescue team that gathers around a fire and sings search and rescue songs, reads in their search and rescue manual, and then they never go look for the one who's lost. You hold in your hand today, and if you didn't get one, you better. A simple tool that you can use over the holiday season to invite someone who may be relationally disconnected with the Father to a service where they can hear a relevant message for them. Studies have shown that most people don't come to church because nobody ever invites them. Don't let that be said of you. One more story. When I went to seminary, so this was before the other church, I pastored two little churches in southwestern Indiana, Crawford County, Indiana. And at the time, it was the most poverty-stricken area in Indiana. And they asked me to come and be their pastor. And so there were two little churches. One had 17, one had 7. They were five miles apart down an old dirt road along the Ohio River. For the life, they, they, they would not come together. <laughs> so I would preach at one church and drive five miles down the dirt road and teach at the other one. Now, A little interesting fact here is that um, at that time in Indiana, there was one part of the state that didn't change time, it stayed the same throughout the year, there was another part that did change time with like what we do, and the dividing line ran right between those two churches. I stayed confused the whole time I was there as to what they called it fast and slow time. I I, I couldn't figure it out. The church that had seven, the average age in that church was 85. The youngest one in the church was 69. There were seven of them. And I remember after a couple of Sundays, I sat down on the front steps of the the little auditorium there while they sat in the front pew and I said, hey, what are we going to do to reach our community? And they kind of looked at each other. And finally, the baby of the group, she raised her hand and she said, Pastor, have you looked at us? Some of us could hardly make it in here this morning. We don't have anything to offer. And I said, well, I don't believe that's true. I believe Scripture teaches that God has gifted us with something. So regardless of age or what your capacity is, I believe that we could be doing something to impact this community. Pastor, what do you think that is? And then I drew a blank. I'm like, oh no, what have I just done to myself? What can they do? And so I'm still talking with Geneva. And I said, well, Geneva, you make the first thing that popped into my mind you make the best strawberry pies that I've ever tasted. And she said, I do, don't I? <laughs> She said, but what could I do with, with strawberry pies? Oh, guys, let me tell you, it was, they were delicious. And at certain times of the year, she would throw in a little rhubarb. She grew her own strawberries, and she would freeze them so that every week she brought to the seven of us a fresh strawberry pie. The guys at the seminary when I lived at the dorm loved that. They waited on me to get back on Sundays. And I said, um, well, Geneva, as much as it pains me to say this to you, what if rather than giving us your pies... You found somebody in the community that may be hurting. They may be going through a loss. Maybe somebody that's just had a baby. Maybe just somebody that the Lord would lay on your heart that may need some encouragement. And you take that pie to them and just simply say this to them. Hey, won't you come to my church? She said, oh, pastor, I could never do that. She said, I'm so shy. And she's very shy. And that's when the patriarch of the church got up. Erman Culver, he was in his 90s. His body riddled with Parkinson. And he stood up on his cane and he was shaking. And he said, I tell you what, Pastor. If Geneva will bake those pies, my wife and I, we've been married since, you know, the time of Adam and Eve. My wife and I, we'll take them to people. And they were known in the community... Uh, as the couple that drove the Ford Pinto that was held together by bumper stickers. (laughs) They puttered around everywhere. So over the next few months, Geneva would bake her pies, and James and Ehrman would find somebody who was hurting, somebody who needed some encouragement, and they would take them a pie, and they would say something like this, Hey, you ought to come to my church. And the following Easter, we walked from the church down to the Ohio River and participated in 30 people being baptized and that was, responsi- that was in response to those three people who said what can we do to reach the lost in our community it doesn't have to be complicated it doesn't have to be complicated So, will you join? Will you be a part of the rescue team? Will you repent of the elder brother attitude? Will you say, God, I don't want to be standing on the outside of a party. Will you say, will you say a South Valley church... Will you say together, God, we are going to be responsible for multiple parties in heaven. As far as it depends upon us, heaven will be celebrating every week, every day. And that can happen. That can happen if you'll join the team. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the way that there was somebody in our lives at some point who cared enough about us to reach out to us. I thank you that you cared about me when I was lost. And I thank you that there are parties being thrown in heaven because of the work that this church has done and will continue to do. Now, for some of us, we need to leave here repenting because we've had an elder brother attitude. And for others of us, maybe today would be the day uh, that we would say, it's time that I come to my senses and go home. We look forward to all the wonderful things that will happen because of the work of these people who call this church their home. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people say, Amen. Thank you for being here today. God bless you. Have a great week. Be sure you get your invitation cards. God bless you. See you next week.